Good evening to you all. Is the back row okay, volume-wise? Yes. And we're all here, at least as here as we are right now. I wanted to touch on a few different things tonight. And maybe at first I'll talk a little bit about what we've been doing. So you may have noticed at this point that you've gotten a lot of instructions. Have you noticed that? So we've talked on a number of topics. We've talked on the uh, four four foundations of mindfulness. We've talked a little bit about the five hindrances. We've talked about uh, the five aggregates, the seven factors... uh, of awakening, we've talked about uh, attitude of mind, we've talked about Vedana, we've given a lot of teachings like this, and then we've given you a lot of options in terms of how you could practice. So, first there's the question, to anchor or not to anchor? You know, are you going to use a primary object, and if so, which one are you going to use? The breath, and if you're going to use the breath, are you going to know it at the belly? Are you going to know it at the nostrils? Are you going to know it at the whole body? Or maybe you're going to use the body sitting, or maybe you're going to use hearing. That's just in the uh, primary object department. And then, of course, we've got styles of practice. You know, you could do open awareness, you could use a, a combination of directed awareness and open awareness. You could use noting, you could uh, focus on attitude of mind, you could look at awareness itself. And we haven't uh, even really touched on the instructions for the (laughs) Brahma Viharas or for walking meditation. So there's been a lot of directions that have been offered. And with the offering of directions, of course, then comes your response, your direct practice. So you've had the experience of trying to stay on the breath, trying to feel the breath at the nostrils, trying to feel the breath at the belly, trying to feel the breath in the body, trying to feel the body, trying to notice thoughts, trying not to get lost in thoughts, trying to notice emotions, trying to feel emotions in the body, trying to notice identification with emotion, trying to notice when awareness returns after being lost, trying not to judge self, trying to notice when self is being judged, trying to note striving, trying to let go of striving, try to notice the hindrances, trying not to judge the hindrances, (laughs) trying to notice the arising of the contracted self-sense, trying to notice mind states but not judge them, trying to allow painful sensation but not stay with it too long, trying to redirect awareness when indicated, trying to stay awake when sleepy, trying to stay still when restless, trying to notice intentions, trying to decide which intentions are skillful to act on, trying not to hold on, trying to let go but not push away, 
trying to be continuous throughout the day, trying not to get too tight, trying to pay attention to the Dharma talks, trying to follow teacher guidance or not. So, you know, there's kind of a lot of doing in this, isn't it? I mean, is this why we start at 5.45 in the morning? You know, maybe we should, like, bump that up a little bit, you know, get, get a couple more hours in before daybreak or something just to get all the doing in. However, at this point, in your mind, uh, a subversive thought may have arisen. And the subversive thought might be something like, well, this is called insight meditation, right? So where's the insight? (laughs) There's been a lot of instruction, there's been a lot of teaching, there's been a lot of doing, but where is the insight? There is a, I have a friend who's Southern, and she, she always says, uh, at certain points in the retreat, she'll say, well, where's the inside at? <laughs> and you may wonder, you know, where are these insights that I'm supposed to be having? And I'm tr- trying to do it right. But there's the dreaded phrase, nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. So maybe no big opening has happened, or, or maybe at some point there was some kind of thing that seemed kind of interesting and new and kind of big, but you know it went away. <laughs> and as much as you might try to retrace your steps, mind moment by mind moment, you just can't bring it back in the way you'd like to. So the question is, where are the insights for which insight meditation is named? You know, And you might say, well, all I see is a bunch of stuff, and not necessarily pleasant. So where's the bliss, the ease, the joy, all the rest of it? Or you may have a very specific question, which is, how does knee pain fit into this scheme? <laughs> So about those insights first. Consider the knee pain, for example. It in and of itself may not be an insight, but it is the raw material from which insight may arise. So let me explain further. You know, in fact, you could say that all your life, all our lives, we've been having experiences which are the raw material from which insight could arise. So think of what it's like to be us humans. The three universal characteristics that the Buddha talks about, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not selfness, are always there. They're always there. They're always a way to characterize what's happening at a deep level. They're always there in conditioned phenomenon. So the raw material is there, but we don't see it. Take, for instance, dukkha. Um, 
Nobody winds up at a place like Spirit Rock unless you've had some contact with dukkha. Or, as you could uh, put it, people don't come and do things like this because they're too happy. <laughs> right? There's something, either in the immediate sense or in you know, a larger sense, that's a very deep question, some kind of uh, inquiry that the mind just can't leave alone. In fact, for many of us, it was <clears throat> direct contact with something that was very problem- problematic for us that led us in the direction of spiritual inquiry, and that has been very much a part of what actually got us here, sitting on the cushion, doing something like this. So I, I consider for myself, for instance, you, know, you go back into the personal narrative, There are a number of different things, but one of the things that was definitely part of it for me was that I was raised within a military family uh, in the wake of the Second World War. I'm a baby boomer. So I was raised in this family with, you know, an understanding that the military kept the world from being destroyed by um, the Nazis, and this was all part of the, a good thing and an appropriate thing to do. So I was raised within this environment. And then I can remember getting to be in about fifth grade or something and picking up this book called Hiroshima, which was a description about what actually happened when the bomb was dropped in Japan and reading this you know, very detailed and having the reaction to it that this is horrible. How can this be right? How can this be right? And it led me into this very deep exploration, lifelong exploration in some ways, of why was there war? Uh, Why were human beings like this? Why did they do things like uh, this to each other? what caused it and how, how could it be prevented? How could something else be done? So dukkha exploration. And you probably have your own version of this, you know, whether it was a loss or um, a death, death or a disillusionment or, you know, that some kind of seeing into some particular form of suffering. That's part of you being here. So we've all had a lot of uh, examples of suffering directly in our lives that could push us into into inquiry. And in fact, we've all had a lot of deeply painful things which have moved, moved us forward, sometimes right up to the edge of hopelessness. But we didn't really generalize this insight into dukkha. Right? It was our personal experience. Or maybe we did generalize it in some sort of way, but very often when we generalize it uh, outside of a Dharma framework, it leads us into the direction of despair or depression. So a state of extreme uh, mental suffering. 
And you could say it's also a rare person who gets to be adultish without no, noticing impermanence in Nietzsche. So, you know, we know that things change, we see the seasons, and we notice, you know, our parents getting older, or our children growing up, or ourselves getting older. We see relationships come and go. We see, um, you know, changes in our health, changes in our weight, changes in our hair, all the rest of it. We see it. So there's a lot of raw material there to see this characteristic, but the, but the insight isn't generalized. We see impermanence sometimes in some things, but don't understand it to be universal at a deep down level. Take the third characteristic, anatta, no self or not self experience. Many, if not most of us, have also had experiences of this, right? The experience of making love with a partner where there's a close connection, the experience of uh, playing music and uh, you know, merging with the activity, being completely focused on an activity where any sense of time and I falls away. We've had this experience, quite possibly. But we see it as a rare and special kind of thing, not seeing it as an experience that can help inform us as to what is universally true with phenomenon. So we've had all this raw material related to these three characteristics. And most of it has happened outside of any association with Buddhism or a Buddhist center or meditation practice. But generally there was no liberating insight that arose along with it. And the question is, why? And I think the simplest answer to that is that these experiences didn't occur within the framework of an understanding of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. We didn't have or understand the teachings that these three things are universal characteristics, and because of the lack of this context, we're not in a position to directly know, see, and open to the implications of the universality of these features of conditioned things. Because it's really when you consider the three of them together and how they reflect each other and inform each other that you really start to see the implications for what's going on. One of the geniuses of the Buddha, and there were many, was that he was able to see how things were put together, how causation uh, operated, how one thing led to another, how reality works, how it's all structured. And then he could take those design properties, if you want to call it that way, of reality, and use it in a very constructive and interesting way. So the Buddha knew how to reverse engineer 
Did you ever hear that phrase, reverse engineering? Any engineers here, architects, or just people who like to plagiarize other people's inventions? So the, <laughs> the general idea is you take something, you see how it works, how it's put together, largely by disassembly, and then once you understand what's involved with it, you know how to make another one. Or, if you find another thing of that type, you know how to take it apart. You understand what goes into its construction. So when our own understanding comes together, we gradually come to see the universality of these experiences. So if we're going to look at the three characteristics through the Buddha's own lenses, through his view, we'd say that probably impermanence is the easiest one to begin to get a grip on. Because we already accept that things change that they don't last forever. But the passing away of all things, that's a different story, isn't it? To see that every single thing that we experience arises and passes away. That this is true on all scales that we can imagine at kind of the most micro or minute scale, even the invisible scale up to and including um, the galaxy, the largest kind of scale that you could imagine. We don't really uh, see or or accept it on the emotional level or on the body level or on the deep down all the way through level, but we get it sometimes and we get it in a limited way. But because we don't fully get it, we don't fully get the dukkha piece. We do see unsatisfactoriness sometimes. There's no doubt about it. And in fact, a large part of our kabuki dance as human beings has to do with trying to minimize the uh, unpleasantness and the suffering uh, that seems to easily come upon us, especially um, when we're not paying attention. So there's a lot of things we don't like. And from the perspective of us as human beings, this seeking control of things, we see that there's a problematic tendency for things to go awry. And we struggle with that a lot, don't we? Attempting to assert control or reassert control or steer things or get them to go away or get them to stay. But because our agency is limited, there's a lot of insecurity in this. Even our successes at a certain point in time are subject to the laws of change and things will alter and the nice setup that we had starts to shake and then at a certain point it falls down. We can't summon only the experiences we want and keep them there, and we can't keep away the ones that we don't like. And of course, a good part of what we experience is outright painful, and the old age sickness uh, and death. 
loss and separation. And of course, one of the reasons we have limited control is that everything, everything that we experience is conditioned, even our bodies and minds, and they have their own lawful nature according to those conditions. When you think about the equanimity phrase that, that we use, think about what we're saying. You know, recog- Things like recognizing the lawful nature of things, may my mind be steady and open in the coming and going of events. It's kind of how we talk it. It's a recognition that we don't have that ability to grasp it and make it, so keep it that way. And this lack of control is, at least in part, rooted in impermanence. Number one. So you see the interrelationship between them. And then not-self, of course, is the most difficult of the three to see directly because it's counterintuitive, isn't it? It goes a little bit against the way we tend to experience ourselves, especially if we're not looking too closely. And this sense of I, me, and mine is really deeply embedded in language. And of course, language influences how we think. Um, Consider how different it is when we have an experience of something as uh, my anger or uh, my pain or my uh, badness versus anger, pain, (laughs) unskillfulness. It's a different thing, isn't it? When there isn't that kind of claiming of ownership and relationship to things. And that's the interesting thing about claiming ownership as if um, what we were experiencing uh, was not subject to uh, impermanence and to lawfulness. When we claim ownership of things, we claim the full ride. The Buddha talks a lot about the five aggregates and our sense of ownership. And it really raises the question, what sense do we own the experience? Do we control it? Can we say, I want my mind to uh, only do this and have it do it? Well, maybe if you're in a very deep state of concentration, it will do it for a while. But even those states of concentration ultimately break and pass away. Can we say, I command my body to only feel pleasant sensations and to never get sick? That would be a nice order that I think we've probably all given many times. So the Buddha says, we should regard things as, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. So we don't have enough control to intelligently think our relationship with experiences one of ownership. I mean, we can claim it, but if we're claiming it, we're not very good drivers. 
Of course, we have will and intention, but that's only part of it, right? Because those are conditioned as well. We can't always summon um, that. So you can see that selfing isn't really a helpful way to understand experience, but it's a very deep pattern of mind, a deep habit. So the genius of the Buddha is that he saw this at such a great depth that he saw right to the bottom of causation and he understood the system as a whole, how things influenced each other, how they hung together. And he understood the mechanism, so he understood the way to undo the whole thing. But what he saw is hard for us to see because we often take a very personal view of it. We see things through our own eyes and we see it intermittently and we don't see the universality of it. We don't see them continuously in our own mind stream or in the lives of others around us or in things in general. And the reason for this is that mindfulness is not continuous. Most of the time for most of us. So, so then a fundamental thing that needs to be developed in this process of awakening goes right to our ability to pay attention. That's a point that needs development. And that's why mindfulness is such a linchpin kind of quality for the whole unraveling of illusion. The Buddha's framework for seeing and developing the capacity to see things in a skillful way is the Eightfold Path. So to get back to that whole first piece about instructions and all the instructions that we've given you and all the rest of it, you could say that the Buddha's view and his viewpoint is incorporated into the meditation instructions that we give you. So you could say they're like the operating instructions for your own system that are framed in such a way as to carry his perspective into your own mind stream, giving you the opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to try this way of looking at it and I'm going to try this way of proceeding and see what happens, see how things look, see how it goes, see what arises. So they're a kind of bridge for taking the current experience and understanding of the three characteristics and extending it from a personal and occasional kind of recognition into an understanding which sees and accepts the universality of this and the implications of these being universally present. So if you look at the whole process of insight meditation, you can see that it's designed to create a stable platform via the development of mindfulness and concentration 
for continuous viewing of the flow of changing objects. That's kind of what it all boils down to. And this this is when it gets very interesting, right? Is when you have the instructions and you're relatively clear about the instructions and then you try to apply them. That's when it gets really yeasty. So you can see, for instance, again and again we see the mind attempts to exercise control of what arises and what passes away. Meaning, you see the mind fighting with what it's actually experiencing, trying to control it, and suffering in the process and failing. Has anybody noticed this? You had one or two experiences like this here? So over time, through a lot of direct experiences, then you start to see this pattern and begin to have some kind of intuition about its futility. You see this enough times and clearly enough, and then the mind decides not to try it that way because it doesn't work. So it starts to get an idea that it doesn't work. So then it lets go a little bit, and then there's some ease and some peace that that arises in the mind. So there's a giving up control of a sort, maybe a little tentative, maybe just a little bit of giving up, but then there's some relief, and then the end of suffering when you let go, and it softens in that kind of way. And then there's some peace. And then what happens next? (laughs) The peace passes away. So then, of course it passes away, it's conditioned, it's impermanent. It's not like we get on the seven factors of enlightenment escalator and it just goes up, you know. (laughs) Even grade. Nothing but the seven factors getting stronger and stronger, you know. If only. So the peace passes away because it's conditioned. And then what does the mind do? Well, tries to get it again, of course. It tries to get it again directly. Doesn't it? And, you know, often people will come in for interviews and they'll say, went away and, you know, I've been trying to get it back. Get it back. Which is another way of saying that the mind is then ignoring or fighting with what's now present, trying to control it in the interest of getting the previous satisfying experience. And of course, suffering arises and then control uh, eludes. So there are many cycles of this. Have you noticed? (laughs) You noticed a lot of cycles of this? You know, on large scale, on small scale, you know, it might be something relatively small, like a satisfying feeling, uh, contact with the breath at the nostrils and not being able to get that, or, you know, it could be a mind state, 
trying to get that or trying to get that back or you know it it can also have uh, a kind of unpleasant valence to it too where you're trying to get rid of uh, a state that's unpleasant or where there's a judgment about it and you know trying to push it away and get rid of it so there are cycles of this there are lots and lots of cycles of this and when you notice this consciously oh this is a thing the mind does all it really has to do is just sit here and just things are happening and just let them happen and just know them when they're happening. But it doesn't do that. It like gets involved with trying to manipulate what's going on and then it suffers. When this starts to arise in the mind, this recognition of cycles, the seeing of this, you're in insight territory. When you start to see how suffering is created through misunderstanding of what's going on, through rejection of what's going on, you're in insight territory. So finally the mind starts to get it and it begins to release and to allow. The struggle diminishes, suffering fades, seeing becomes more clear, Mindfulness strengthens, concentration deepens, and the conditions for happiness and freedom arise. So let me give some examples of things. When I started writing these examples, I thought, wow, I could go on a really long time writing these examples of... I won't call them them insights. I'll call them lessons, (laughs) which to me is a little bit more to the point. Because, really, it's a little bit more grounded, isn't it? Having to do with our own immediate and direct experience and what we are learning from it, what conclusions we're coming to. So I'll give, give you a sampler of some things that I've heard, but I could have gone on for a really long time, that, I, that are lessons or insights. may have occurred to you. Things are happening on their own. When I reject what's happening, I suffer. When I want something to happen that isn't happening, I suffer. When I disconnect from things, I get lost. Pain gets worse when tightening around it. Pain isn't a solid thing. There are different sensations happening within the experience. If something is strongly pleasant or unpleasant and that isn't noticed, the mind often goes into grasping or aversion. Cycles of thoughts of a particular kind often have an emotion present. Emotions have a body sensation component. (coughs) Cycles of thought, emotion, and body sensation show how the body and mind condition each other. Trying to make something specific happen takes a lot of energy, makes you tight, better known as suffer, and generally doesn't work. When the self-sense tries to run the meditation, it does not go well. 
When the mind just accepts what is present, there is no suffering, even if things are unpleasant. Unwholesome states met with mindfulness will decrease in frequency and strength. Wholesome states met with mindfulness will increase in frequency and strength. Trying to get rid of things means the war is on. Letting things come and go on their own is quite interesting and easeful. When the mind gets settled, it sees more. When the awareness is more continuous, it sees more. When the mind is willing to see whatever, it sees more. There are a lot of layers to things, smaller activities and arisings happening within seemingly solid experiences. When the mind does not try to implement preferences, it gets equanimous. When it gets equanimous, it gets steady and clear. When it gets steady and clear, it accepts things the way they are, and the war is over. Have you noticed any of those things or things like them? When they're talking about insights and insight meditation, that's what's being pointed to, this kind of internal learning that's happening. Now, you can put this process in the language of the path of purification. You can use those kinds of maps if you find it meaningful. But really, this is your mind. This is your own experience of waking up from the inside. You don't need to go out looking for some other frame of reference other than the establishment of mindfulness, which is continuous within the framework of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. You know, this is really a path of simplicity. You don't need to figure out where you're going as you do it. The only thing that you need to do is be present with what you're knowing, present with what you're knowing now, and then the next knowing now, the next knowing now, keeping the awareness stationed in the present. And it will all come up and parade itself by you for your perusal and education. (laughs) You don't need to hop your mind up from the depths of what you're experiencing and, you know, stick up a periscope and look around to see where you think you might be on the map of the progress of insight. These maps are interesting. They're interesting, sometimes they're even useful, especially in retrospect. But they're not a GPS system. You may know theoretically the direction of the map 
and the description of some of the territory, but that doesn't tell you what you're experiencing right now, does it? It's what you're experiencing right now and how you're experiencing it, how you're relating to it. That is the, that is the path. So, you know, you don't need to be confused about what you have to do because it's kind of simple. So you hold a basic framework of um, the Buddha's understanding of phenomenon, that there are these three characteristics, and that's the basic view. And once you get an understanding about the three characteristics, even that you can kind of let go of. You don't always have to be dredging that one up either. You know, oh, I've got to find impermanence, I've got to find impermanence, I've got to find impermanence. Well, you knew impermanence a little while ago, so I guess you're seeing impermanence because now you're looking for it again, right? <laughs> you know, just take the seat. Just, just sit there, okay? So then choose a way of working that allows you to connect and notice your direct experience in a mindful and kind way. A way of working where your mind can grab hold. And that's very different for different ones of you. You know, some people do well with kind of a tight, directed practice. Some people, you know, that would blow the top of their head off. You know, some people do fine with open awareness. Some people, that would be complete space out city. They would never, you know, gain any, any concentration. It, it's relative to you, and it's relative to you at different points in the process. So choose a way of practicing. Be clear about the instructions, rest there, stay there with direct experience, rest in awareness and keep connecting and noticing. Then you will come to understand struggle and suffering and the release of suffering just through seeing the creation of suffering (laughs) and how it can end. Just through the continuity of seeing at at that depth. So you don't really need to go out looking for things, looking for trouble, looking for things, looking for trouble, going out, trying to find this, trying to find that, you know. Got to go hunting for the five aggregates. I got to go, you know, stalking the seven factors, you know. (laughs) It's like, got to do this. I got to find, I got to do the four foundations this morning, this afternoon I'm going to do the five aggregates, you know, tonight I think I got to do the Brahma Viharas, I got to, you know, uh, turn it into a job, you know. (laughs) Too much work. It's, It's hard enough just getting into the present, taking the seat and staying there, isn't it? That's like plenty. That's plenty for a mind moment, just, you know, getting in the, in the seat, Accepting what's there, mind moment by mind moment, letting it be how it is, that's doing plenty. So just to leave you with an image, the thousand-petaled lotus, which opens when the causes and conditions are right. By practicing in this way, you're doing what, what you can to call forth the causes and conditions for this to open. 
And this has its nature to open. It wants to open. If with the proper warmth and light and nourishment, it will open. It will open petal at a time, insight by insight, when the conditions are established. So there's no need to make it too fancy. There's no need to have too grandiose or complexified understanding about what these things are that are caused, called insights actually are. There's plenty of raw material as we established at the beginning of the talk. So just enjoy your insights. <laughs> or not. <laughs> So let's just sit for a minute. May the mind trust its inherent potential to awaken through non-doing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.